This morning, I'm continuing a series that I started last week titled Normal People Living a Supernormal Natural Life. And uh, one of the, the terms that we have coined here is supernormal natural. And we coined that term specifically because we believe that the supernatural should be normal. And sadly, what too many churches have done is they've rejected the supernatural. They've rejected it based on, you know, Pentecostal craziness or charismaniac, you know, manifestations or things that are unhealthy. And they've made the move of the spirit abnormal, sadly. And so if you've grown up in a church where there wasn't, you know, prophecy and tongues and laying on of hands and all those other things to you, that that could seem very abnormal. Now, you're not going to see a lot of that on a Sunday morning because on a Sunday morning, we're much more of a tour guide. We have a lot of people that are visiting, that are checking out Rock City Church, that don't know about us and who we are. There's a lot of misguided understandings about our church, and we're going to talk about that. But what I really want more than anything is that when people walk in, they experience love, they experience health, and they experience what real, normal Christianity should look like. And Christianity without power, Christianity without signs and wonders, Christianity without a move of the Spirit is dead, dry, and has very little effect. It'll have very little effect. Now, I've said this a thousand times, and I say it over and over and over again because there's so many new people that are visiting. You don't build a church on manifestations and signs and wonders. You build a church on family. You build a church on community. You build a church on health and real love. You build a church on people that are living normal lives but embrace everything God has for them and demonstrates it in a way that people can, for the most part, understand and receive. That's what I want. And there is a way to do it because Jesus did it. Jesus did it. And if you read your Bible, you'll see that the way that Jesus lived was full of supernatural activity. It was full of casting out demons and prophets prophetic ministry and laying hands on the sick and moving in signs and wonders for a reason. And the core reason for signs and wonders and miracles is to attract people to God. So when you get healed or when somebody speaks something into your life that resonates in your heart, it should awaken you. The purpose of a move for the spirit like we had in worship is to draw you in to his presence and to experience him in a mighty way. If we don't have the presence of God in this church, If this isn't a presence-driven church more than a purpose-driven church, then we're just going to go through the motions, we'll fall into behavior modification, and there won't be any life-changing power. There won't be what I call the more. Everybody say, because there's more. more. And I'm going to show it to you in Scripture this morning. But what I really want to teach you is how to live normal lives the way that Jesus defines normal. And the way that normal should really be. And I really want to awake you to the more that God has in store for you and to believe in yourself and to believe that God has a purpose and to believe you're a part of something so much bigger than yourself and that there's a mighty movement that's taking place to transform Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, to transform the coastal bend, to transform our nation and the nations of the world. Amen. So normal looks like a lot of things in the Bible. I mean, obviously the Bible is full of what normal should look like. Now, the Bible also has a lot of what not normal looks like. And the reason for that is because God constantly shows you the contrast. And the contrast is the difference between light and dark. And so in the Bible, you see a lot of people that made a lot of mistakes. You see a lot of people that did a lot of things that were abnormal. 
But what you see throughout the entire scriptures is a, is a loving and kind God that redeems abnormal. You see a loving and kind God that takes broken, weak people that don't seem to have it all figured out, and he turns them into something great. The Bible says that the weak things of the kingdom and the foolishness of God are of the wisest of men, and that in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. So normal looks like a lot of things, and what I want to do is I want to tie health and normality into supernatural activity. That's what I want to do. So we're going to start off first with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. And the context of the scripture is that Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, the church in Ephesus was started with incredible supernatural activity. When, when Paul and the disciples rolled into town, suddenly were, there was this incredible contrast where there was power and signs and wonders and miracles. And in Ephesus was one of the seven great wonders of the world called the Temple of Diana. And basically, this was a female goddess that was a goddess over nature, the hunt, and reproductive activity. And so what you had in Ephesus was this incredible temple that people were coming from all over the world to see. And you had all these, you know, silversmiths and souvenir shops and people selling trinkets and, you know, replicas of the god of Diana. And so when the disciples rolled into town and started having this revival of signs and wonders and people are getting transformed and people are experiencing the Lord Suddenly, people started to forsake their, the idols and stop buying things from the silversmiths and the tour shops. And a great riot broke out, and I mean, it was wild and it was crazy. Now, Timothy stays behind to lead a church and comes under all kinds of opposition. People are persecuting him, people are mocking him, uh, people are slandering him, people are speaking evil against him, the church and God. And so Paul would constantly encourage his spiritual son, Timothy. I'm trying to keep this very simple for you, okay? And here's what he'd say. He said, this charge I commit to you, son, Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. Now, just leave it there. The, the understanding in the Greek of waging a good warfare, both the words war and warfare in the Greek are the words for strategy. And the understanding is that God has a battle strategy and he has a plan and we're all being commissioned to fulfill it. That's why so many times I say that the, the narrative of the church has to have a militant understanding. And I don't mean dominant and controlling and oppressive. I mean militant in the understanding that we're in a war. The devil hates you. He doesn't want you to live for Jesus. He doesn't want you moving forward. He doesn't even mind if you're a Christian as long as you sit on the bench and you become a bench warmer. Don't suit up and get in the game. Just be a bench warmer. When you make the decision to become effective, when you make the decision to go after more, you're going to have opposition. When you make the decision to come to a church like this that has an apostolic prophetic strategy, you're going to come under opposition. That's why people battle anxiety. That's why people get up and leave. That's why people struggle. They can handle the worship, but when I start to speak, I've heard stories after stories of people, you know, battling confusion or anxiety or getting up and leaving for whatever reason. 
And I want to encourage you to resist that and don't, don't let the enemy get the best of you. And the best way that you can do that is to trust and believe that God does have you here for a reason. And I know that some of you are visiting and I know that some of you are checking me in this church out. There's a, there's a lot of things that have been said about Rock City Church and Corpus Christi. Sadly, the people that are speaking negatively about this church have never met me. They don't come here and they probably never listen to the podcast. So because we go after the more that God has in store and we love the gifts of the spirit and we love a move of the spirit, people believe that that's what we're all about. But really my greatest message is sonship, identity, who you are, loving your spouse first, loving your kids right, having a home that's filled with God's love and God's power, what it means to work hard and what it means to live as good examples in society. It's not about the signs and the wonders and the miracles. That's just the icing on the cake. But the cake itself is knowing Jesus intimately, reading your Bible, understanding doctrine, being spirit-filled, and living productive lives. It's what I would call being normal, okay? Timothy, when he would get commissioned to travel with Paul and go out into the mission field, the elders in Jerusalem laid hands, they fasted, they prayed, and they laid hands on him. And they prophesied over him. Timothy had a spirit-filled mother, and he had a spirit-filled grandma. And let me tell you, you can't get away from a praying grandma, and you can't get away from a praying mama, right? And so Timothy had all these promises spoken over his life, and he knew the scriptures. The Bible says that Timothy knew the scriptures from an early age. So here he is in Ephesus, a place full of witchcraft, full of darkness, full of sorcerers, full of new age. And he's coming, he's basically planted a church and coming in under, under massive opposition. And so Paul says, remember those prophecies that were spoken over you. And that's why we have to have a apostolic prophetic church. Ephesians 2 says that the entire, entire church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. With Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And it doesn't mean that we're always prophesying over, over each other all the time, nor does it mean that all of you are prophets. What it means is we live prophetic lifestyles. Let me give you the most simple definition of a prophetic lifestyle. You spend time with Jesus and you get your daily bread. Because daily bread means daily bread, means that Jesus is speaking to you and communing with you. If you're hearing God's voice, that's prophetic. If you speak what God tells you, if you start living what God tells you, that's prophetic. It simply means to become an instrument or a steward or a mouthpiece with the promises of God to live them and to speak them and to be examples of them. Guys, it's people are going to try to label you when you start saying, I hear from the Lord and the Lord started to speak to me about this and I'm going to live. In fact, our society slowly over the course of time is going to begin to believe that you're crazy because you hear God's voice. All right, it's already been in the news. People are going to think you're here. Because what happens is, is the devil uses, masquerades himself as God's voice and tells people to do like idiotic things. And they say, well, God told me to do it. When God never told him to do it. It's the little G, not the big G. Okay? And so, we're talking about what's normal in the context of, let's pull the scripture back up. Timothy would have these prophetic promises over life, over his life. And so Paul, his spiritual father, would remind him, take those prophetic words and warfare with them. That's why I have apostles and prophets come into this church. 
we are a for-profit church. All right, that was kind of a joke. We really are a non-profit church, right? All churches are non-profits. But what I mean is, is that we bring profits in when in this day and age, sadly, they're being discounted. Now, the profits we bring in exhort, they comfort, they build, and they set things in position in place. They're builder profits, okay? Now, we don't do that a lot. We bring profits in a couple times a year, but we bring in other guys like that are evangelists and pastors and teachers because we want the whole expression of the fivefold ministry in this church. So he says, take those prophecies that were made about you, and I want you to wage the good warfare. I want you to take them and use them as a strategy over your life to dare to tear down the lies of the enemy. So all the accusations, all the persecutions, all the things that the enemy would try to say against you, take the promises and the prophecies that God has spoken about your life. Look, if you've never had a prophetic word over your life, just read your Bible and make it personal. Just listen to God's voice because God's voice, inside God's voice are directives, their strategies, their encouragements. And they're things that you can grab a hold on and use to fight and and be led into the battle and overcome with victory the way God's called you to, to overcome. Let's look at verse 19. So then Paul goes on to say there's a couple of other critical components that you have to have in your life. Number one, you have to have faith. Faith is the starting point. Faith is, you. without faith, you're never going to know God and you're never going to experience God and you're never going to please God, Okay. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about faith, what faith is, what faith looks like. The Bible says we walk by faith, the just live by faith. The Bible says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, meaning that faith is tangible. Faith isn't an I hope so, it's an I know so. Faith isn't doubting, but rather it's trusting and believing with confidence. And the, and the front line of, def, of offense from the enemy side is to get you to doubt is to get you to not believe. That's what he did against Adam and Eve in the garden. So his plans are always the same. Did God really say? Did that really happen? Is he really real? He doesn't really care. If he really loved you, you wouldn't be going through this. He's not a loving and caring God. So the enemy is always working on overtime to get you to doubt and disbelieve. So faith is like the starting point. Faith is, Lord, I believe and I'm trusting you and I'm gonna live and walk my life with total dependence and confidence upon you. Then Paul goes on to say having a good conscience. The con- your conscience is between your soul and your spirit. Your conscience is that voice that's constantly speaking to you. It's accusing you or, or uh, re-excusing you. Thank you. And so if you have a seared conscience, if you've been shipwrecked, if you're stuck, if you were hurt, if you were wounded, if you came from jacked up churches, if you've seen charismaniac in a manipulative way, then it's easy for us to write things off because our conscience is seared. So he says, have a good conscience. You know how you have a good conscience? You've been washed by the water of the word and you have your comforter who comes alongside like the word we, the song we sang today that's speaking truth and life to you. So when the devil tries to tell you that something's off or something's wrong or tries to manipulate you, you have a counter that's much greater. And that counter that's much greater is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Holy Spirit speaks truth to my conscience because you're born again in your spirit 
and he speaks to you from the spirit. Now my conscience is purified by the washing of the water of the word. And now I have the Holy Spirit to bring truth to my life. And I have a good conscience. It also means that I've renounced hidden areas of shame. Second Corinthians four. It means that I'm not walking in craftiness. It means you're not allowing yourselves to give in to, to addictions and porn and all those other things. And here's a great news for you. If you are, bring it to the light. And don't give the enemy any room to accuse you. And this needs to be a culture of safety and health and transparency, not manipulation and control and kicking you when you're down. And so in a real fathering parenting culture, we're breaking shame. In a real spiritual parenting culture, we're loving people and measuring people right, instructing, guiding, warning, leading, breaking off shame and can be imitated. So what we need are people that can have lives that can be imitated. And my question is, can your life be imitated? This is what we're talking about living as normal Christians today. Because imitated lives will be attractive. Lives that people look at and say, man, you got what I want. What is it about you? And it becomes attractive. And that's ultimately where I'm going today. In fact, the title of my message is Part 2, Attractive Love. Okay? So go back to verse 19. So you've got to have a good conscience. Now, that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. That's where family comes in. And that's where time and patience comes in. When people first get born again, they're a mess. And it takes sometimes years for people to grow into maturity and who they're called to be and to bear fruit. That's why you better be patient. You better understand everybody's in process. You better love them. And the only time you measure somebody is when it's unethical, illegal, unbiblical, or immoral. Got that? Now, I love you, and I care about you. And if you want to know why things are going astray in your life, if you're living in sin, sin brings reproach, sin brings shame, and sin ultimately will bring death in your life. So I lovingly... You know, comfort you, I speak life to you, I smile big, I pray for you, and then I tell you, listen, we got to get this thing dealt with, instead of shaming you, beating you up, and then I say, look, God was so patient with me, he had so much mercy in my life that I've got mercy on you in the midst of your jacked up life, and then I smile real big. So I want you to notice that having faith, good conscience, which some having rejected. Now, there's three things. Prophecies made concerning you, have faith, and have a good conscience, and know that some people are going to reject it. So the word for reject in the Greek is the exact word for apathy. Do you know what apathy means? It means to push away. It means to shrug off. It means that I don't want anything to do with it. It means I'm not at all enthusiastic. It means I have no interest and I have no concern. For what? Prophecy, faith, and moral righteousness. And there are going to be people that are going to reject one or all. There are people that reject prophecy and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit today. They're called cessationists. Don't be one of those. A cessationist comes from the word secede. And it means that the gifts and the power and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we read about in the book of Acts stopped with the apostles. And that God used it solely to launch worldwide evangelism and that there needed to be an outpouring of power so that it could get started, but then it stopped. But the problem with that is that it's not biblical. 
And you could go on in scripture, especially in the book of Acts, and find where it continuously happened after Pentecost. And that's why even in Ephesians, to the book, to the Ephesians church in the, in, to the church in Ephesus in the book of Ephesians, it says in verse 518, don't be drunk with wine, but be continuously filled with the spirit. It means don't just get filled 10 years ago and live on that, but be continuously daily filled with the spirit. And to be filled means to be furnished and fully equipped. It doesn't mean to be weird, crazy, loud, shouting in tongues all the time. Really. Now, sometimes that is what it means, but what it really means consistently is that I'm full, I'm furnished, and I have everything that I need, and I'm fully equipped to do whatever God's called me to do in whatever situation I'm facing. Whether a machine blows up or the internet goes out at my coffee shops, which happened, whether my walk-in freezer goes out at 2 o'clock in the morning, which happened, whether people here that I love dearly walk away, which happens, whether somebody has an affair on their spouse, which happens. Sadly, if somebody passes away, which happens. We live in a world of lots of trouble and mistakes and failures. But when you're fully furnished, no matter what comes your way with your spouse or your child or your money, or your, this is normal Christianity. Being filled with the Spirit at all times is normal. I just got to get you there. I got to get you hooked up to the jumper cables and lightning strike you. And then keep you lit. That's what we need to do. So some people are going to reject, meaning they're going to push away and they're going to have an apathetic attitude. There's some people, if I even use the words like prophetic, prophecy, gifts of the spirit, you know, charismatic, man, their ears turn red, their temperature goes up and they're out that door. And a big reason for that is because of dysfunctional things they've experienced from the past. And so then I have a term for that. It's going to be in a chapter of my new book that's going to hopefully come out this year, which is titled Supernormal Natural, is that they throw the baby out with the bathwater. I love that term. It means that because the water's so dirty and so muddied, I'm throwing everything out that's in it, even if it means the baby. Don't, don't, be, don't reject, because you know what rejection leads to? It leads to blasphemy, okay? And there are some people that are blaspheming and some people are suffered ship, suffered shipwreck. Now, you guys, if you don't know and you're visiting, I'm half Greek and half Jewish. So the reason why you get a lot of Greek and Jewish terminology is because that's what I am. I'm not just making it up. Like, really, my father's Jewish and my mom was Greek. And so the word shipwreck, two words where you get the word nautilus or nos for the word ship, And then wreck is where you get the word ago. It means to be led. Now, on the positive side, it means to be led by the Spirit. And you see where I'm going. The ship got wrecked because the compass was broken and the ship was being led in the wrong direction and therefore got stuck or stranded. It means to be stuck or stranded. And it comes from the understanding that you were led the wrong direction. Your compass is broken. And we have a lot of people that are living lives with a broken GPS or a broken compass. How many of you have ever dialed in a direction in Apple Maps and it led you the wrong way? So I go to Google Maps. It's happened more times than I can tell you where I did not know where I was going and I punched in the wrong 
or I punched in the right address and it led me in the wrong direction. And so some of you may feel like you've got the right coordinates, but you're being led in the wrong direction. And it comes from being apathetic and rejection. It will cause your life to feel stuck. And if we're doing things right at Rock City Church, a lot of people will come here that are stuck and you're going to get unstuck. That's what a good church does. It gets you unstuck. And if you're feeling stuck today, let's get you off the reef. Let's repair your ship. Let's fix your compass by getting the Holy Spirit inside of you and get you moving with the wind in the right direction. Amen. Now that's a good word. Now here is the contrast, verse 20. Now I don't have a full understanding of the scripture. And let me just tell you, I have really no concept of what it means to say I'm going to hand somebody over to Satan. But it's in the Bible. And it says that Paul handed these two people over to Satan. Why? Because they blasphemed. Okay? Now, here's what I wrote down about blasphemy. Okay? I wrote this down. Everyone is being led by someone or something. When you're guided in the wrong direction and you're listening to the voice of the enemy, apathy sets in. You lose an interest, you lose concern, you lose enthusiasm, and you begin to believe lies. When you believe a lie, you'll often speak a lie. So blaspheme means to speak evil. It means to slander, it means to reproach, and it means to rail against. So these aren't people that just reject experiences in the Holy Spirit and a church like this. These are people that actually take it to the next level and start speaking against it. Now, God will even use that. In fact, Graham Cook had this vision of all these people over all the years, you know, picketing him and persecuting him for for all the prophetic ministry that he had. One of the nicest, most loving guys you'll ever, ever hear. And God showed him a vision and a dream that every one of those blasphemies were actually chiseling and preparing and sculpting his future of what he was going to become. It happened to Jesus. So when people persecute or blasphemy, it's very destructive And in this case, the blasphemy, Paul would say, I had to literally hand those people over to Satan because they blasphemed. And here's what I think that means today. You know, I like to teach you guys a new word every now and then, right? How many of you know what the word calumniate means? Who knows what the word calumniate means? Calumniate. It means to slander. It means to speak evil against. It means to uh, falsely accuse or make a false report or a malicious statement. Now, I use this example a lot because it's kind of fun and I have a lot more. But the more and more our church grows, the more and more people are going to, especially religious leaders, are going to have disdain or try to speak against us or against you. Guys, it's going to happen. The Bible says that anybody that wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. I told you about our lighting guy, super nice guy, came in, installed the lights. You know, nice guy, but not spirit-filled, doesn't know anything about this church, and put the lights in and sat up in that sound booth and watched me preach just like I am now. And after service, I said, hey, what'd you think? He goes, I was totally shocked. I didn't see any snakes. And I went, what? Because the mindset, sadly, and this is a deception of the enemy, is that spirit-filled churches that embrace Pentecost, because they'll label us as super Pentecostal, 
when I don't even want to take that label or any other label. What I want to do is be spirit-filled, full gospel, embrace the doctrine, and be sons and daughters and mamas and papas. I want to be authentic Christians. And the mindset was that the, the rumor was that that church is weird like the church, like the churches that you see on National Geographic or Discovery Channel where all the generations of pastors died from literally handling snakes. It's idiotic. And so I'm teaching and preparing and training you because what really matters the most is not so much what happens here, but what happens outside those four walls. And that you get a language, a voice, and an understanding. And I don't need you all to go out and just live an apologetic lifestyle and defending me or this church. What I want you to do is to authentically live it confidently and know it for yourself of who you're called to be. And not live pretentious lifestyles. And I especially don't want you to to fall into blasphemy. Because I believe when you start speaking against God's church, I don't even have to hand somebody over to Satan. Either the devil's already got them or they're headlong going that direction, right? Okay, so Paul gives us an answer of what we're to do with with these kind of people. And it's gonna rock you. This gets me so excited. What do you do when people are apathetic? What do you do when people reject? What do you do when people don't have a good conscience? What do you do when people are blasphemy? What do you do when people don't wanna hear what you have to say? What do you do when authorities and leaders scorn you and mock you or your boss is treating you like garbage at your job or in the marketplace? The Bible gives us very clear instruction on how we're to handle that. First Tim- so we go on to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore I exhort, first of all, or I'm building you up, I'm encouraging you, to do this, to make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and to actually give thanks for all men. Because God doesn't want anybody to perish or blasphemy or reject. And so when people are that way, here's the best thing you can do. Pray for them. See, supplications means to petition in agreement with what God says. So if you're not hearing God's voice and have a good conscience, when somebody comes against you, what'll happen is, is you'll speak against them or get offended or take it personal. Stop taking it personal, guys. The more I hear about the church, I don't take it personal. But what I do is I teach culture, I teach health, and I teach life. So we all become a mighty force together as a family. And so to make supplications means that I'm seeing you the way God sees you. And now I'm coming into agreement and praying for you the way God wants me to pray for you. That's what supplication means. And then I'm praying and I'm interceding. Prayer is your first offensive strategy in every situation you face. If you have an issue with your spouse, a coworker, a boss, or anyone, and you haven't prayed for them, you have no right to have that issue. And in fact, what happens is when you start interceding and supplicating, meaning I'm asked, Lord, how do you feel about that person? Lord, how do you... That person has offended me and hurt me and done me wrong. God, how do you feel about that? And the Lord says, remember when I was hanging on that tree and I said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you start to see that spouse or that friend or that person or that coworker or that boss or that other church leader the way God does. And I say, they just don't know. Lord, I just pray God. Do what you want to do in their life. Touch them, heal them, fill them with your spirit. Give them wisdom and understanding. Lord, I pray for a dream in the night. 
I ask you to give them a vision. I ask that, Lord, they would come into the knowledge of your truth and who you're called to be because watch what happens. It says, give thanks. So you're actually going to say thank you for that person instead of saying, God, get him. Just strike him down. Just kill him. Lord, just make him sick. Lord, get vengeance. That's dysfunctional Christianity. Verse 2. Who are we giving thanks and supplicating, praying for, for kings and all who are in authority. Why? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So we're praying for all kings and every single person that's in authority over your life instead of having issues and being offended and gossiping and speaking negative about them. Because there's a king that's greater. And when you understand sovereignty, you understand that God has the ability to turn the hearts of everyone. Even the most wicked, wretched, murder, adulterer, oppressive person. Because Jesus went through that. And Jesus loved and submitted and prayed like a sheep being led to the slaughter. Now, I'm not saying you should be abused, especially if you're married. If you're in an abusive situation, I'm going to encourage you to get out immediately and get help immediately. And as I've said before, abuse is cause for divorce. But at the same time, we've had abusive relationships in this church that got healed and got fully restored, and the marriages are better than they've ever been. But I am saying if, you've been, if you're in an abusive situation, get out and get help right away. Okay? So we're to pray for kings and all who are in authority because there's a greater king. Say there's a greater king. When you start to see the kingdom from the light that I'm teaching you today, it's a game changer. So you do all those things for this purpose. To live a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. Now, let me tell you what quiet and peaceable does not mean. It doesn't mean inactive. It doesn't mean I'm a loner. It doesn't mean I'm a hermit. It doesn't mean I'm going to go become a monk. It doesn't mean leave me alone. I got my life to live and you got yours and I'm not going to be involved in anybody else's and you're not going to be involved in mine. That's not the Christian way. Jesus lived a public life, but he also had a private life. And everything about Christianity is public in the sense of it's all meant to be put on display. So the, the mindset of quiet and peaceable means it's a position internally, and it means that on the inside, I'm living in rest and stillness and confidence because that's the best way to lead governmentally. Because remember, Jesus is leading from a seated position. So to live a quiet and peaceable life means keep your seat. Everybody say, I'm keeping my seat. So when I got on a flight to go to Myrtle Beach not long ago, the first flight out was at 5 a.m. And I, I pick aisle seats on all my flights. I want to be able to get out if I need to. If there's a situation, I want to be able to move. I don't want to be blocked in by a couple, a couple of people. Not that I'm in fear. I just want the freedom to see and to move if I need to. Okay? And so... On the first flight, a tall guy comes in. It's early, you know, five in the morning, and he's tall. I look at him, and I say, would you like to have my seat? He said, sure. So I move over, and I instantly come up, came under a massive wave of, of conviction from the Lord. He's like, I didn't want you to move your seat. And I, he had even told me before to keep my seat on the flights. But I moved, and I was just like, man, Lord, I don't know why I did that. The guy was tall, whatever, I'm sorry, you know, and, he, and I wound up having this like bawling my eyes out experience with the Lord. It was powerful. 
Really, it was powerful. Not because of that, just because I had this, I had worship. It's 5.30 a.m. I'm tired. I have really good times with the Lord at that time. And so on the next flight, the Lord says, don't do that on the next flight. So on the next flight, I'm on the aisle. Somebody's at the window. And I am not kidding you. The guy that comes to sit in the middle is like six foot five. Really, he's ducking as he's walking down. And I said, I'm keeping my seat. (laughs) And the guy comes in and he's crammed in his knees. And I somewhat felt bad, but I knew what the Lord was telling me. And let me tell you, I hope you meet this guy one day. We had the most awesome talk about Jesus. This guy had just started a new church with four other guys. They, they left a denominational church to start a spirit-filled church, but they had no idea what they were doing. And he had a thousand questions. And I, school was in session the whole flight. He was my student, and I was seated in the right seat to disciple him. Okay? So I'm using those little stories as an understanding of a peaceable uh, and quiet life doesn't mean that I'm not active, but it does mean I'm not meddling in your affairs. So it means no more gossip. Stop digging up in my business and in somebody else's business. Live your life, work hard, reflect Christ, be involved, have outreach, pray for people, get prayer, be ready at all times to preach the gospel, but stop trying to dig up into somebody's life, especially if you don't have the relationship. And it means don't live as a busybody and don't live as a gossip. That's what that means. Normal Christianity is as I'm full of power and full of life, and I'm not trying to figure out every move that Andrea and Landon are doing. I'm loving them very well, and she's coming to me because remember this statement. Unsolicited advice is unheeded advice. If you didn't ask, you probably don't want to know. Right? And I would suggest you guys are here because you wanted some advice today or wanted to hear what I had to teach you. Thank you. So I have freedom to speak into your life. Thank you for coming. But if I'm walking around meddling up in your business, God never called us to be the God cops. The Lord called us to be fishers of men, not to clean them too. It's not my job to clean you up. It's my job to give you the truth and the life and to pray for you and to encourage you and to point you in the right direction always. And when you need it, I'm there. And I'm asking how you're doing, not because I'm meddling and being a busybody. If you're being a busybody trying to dig up into my life or somebody else's life and you're gossiping, you are in danger of being shipwrecked. I love you. smile real big. I don't know how else to say it in another nice way. So, Quiet and peaceable life comes with godliness and reverence. You know what reverence means? It means that I live my life in such a way that that commands honor. That's what reverence means. Live your life in such a way that commands honor to your coworkers, to your family, to your spouse. You live your life in a way that even unbelievers are attracted. Remember, we're talking about attractive love. And when you live a life in reverence and in godliness, meaning real religious piety, I don't just say that I spend time with the Lord. I really do. And it's exemplified by how I treat my wife, my life, my business, the church. The fruit is the evidence of the tree. Yeah. And I'm not bragging on myself, but I want to be an example as a father. But I want you to live like that. That's what I want. So we live a life with godliness And reverence, and verse 3, it's peaceable life. It's a life that, or verse 2 talked about, 
it being a quiet and peaceable life. And then verse three says, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our savior. Verse four, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the point is, is that how I live my life is a reflection, an example of how people come into the knowledge of the truth. It's attractive love because you're called to be a peacemaker. Matthew five, nine. Everything I'm doing is in the understanding, Matthew 5, 9, that I'm out to bring peace to people's lives in every situation. And because of that, because of the way that I become a peacemaker, what you'll get a title. If you want a title in the kingdom, this is the best title you can get. We're waiting for it to come up on the screen. Sometimes the computer moves. So Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. There's your best title. If you're on Facebook ranting and raving, if you're speaking, we were called to pray even for President Obama. And I know some of you hate that with seething hate. The Bible says that all authorities were to pray for. Doesn't mean I agree with all their decisions. I don't even agree with every single decision that President Trump makes. But you know what? I pray and I support and I love and I give my life fully to a reflection of what Jesus would do. So peacemakers are called. Peacemakers have the best title. They have the best title. Here's why. Because people will look at you and call you something. And you know what they'll say? Oscar, you're the real deal, bro. You are the real deal. You guys, the way you love, the way you care, the way you live, you, you live. I'm the president of an outlaw biker ministry. I, keep, I don't flaunt it. I don't show it off. I don't, because that's not what it's about. But we reach people that will never even shake your hand. And you say you're a Christian, they'll, they'll like, I hate you. But some of these guys love me. You know why? Because they see the fruit of my life and they know, and they've even said, you're the real deal. I'm going to leave you with this scripture, and then we're going to pray. First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, concerning brotherly love, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write you. So the word brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. It's benevolent love. It means we're each treating each other properly, and we're, it's beneficial love. I'm doing things for you. You're doing things for me. But that's not the highest form of love. The highest form of love is goes on where it says, for you yourselves are taught by God to have agape love for one another. You got to be taught by God. So Paul's saying, I don't even need to teach you. I shouldn't even be writing you concerning brotherly love because you should be being taught by God. Normal Christianity is that we're not coming every Sunday to get our fix or to get our word or watching it on Christian TV, you start to live it for yourself every day and you're eating and drinking from the Lord himself and you're hooked to the vine and you're, you are moving with him at all times and you're not just getting it here. We get it here. We need it here. We need it together. God orchestrated and designs this. But the greater thing is that you're coming to the place where you're being taught by God directly and it's doctrinal, and it's healthy, and it's not immoral, unethical, or unbiblical, right? And that takes family. That takes measuring. He says, you're taught by God to have agape love. The best form of love brings the best form of brotherly love, okay? Verse 10, and indeed, you do so toward all brethren who who are in all of Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. 
Everybody say, because there's more. And I got to increase. Now we decrease so that he can increase, but we're increasing more and more in the way we love and the way we demonstrate that love. Verse 11. Here's a great 411 for you. To aspire means that I have an aim and a purpose and a movement and a direction and a guidance in my life. It means I have a goal. It means I'm ambitious for the right reasons. It means I labor and I work and I do so in a way that's honoring and receives honor. That's what the word aspire means. Aspire to lead, here we go, a a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. To mind your own business means stop gossiping. Stop living vicariously through other people on social media. Love them, support them, stay connected for the right reasons. But God has dealt each one of us a measure of faith. And we all have a set of circumstances in our, in our life that he gives us a hand to play. And your hand is going to be different than the person's hand next to you. There'll be some similarities, but it'll be uniquely you. Now, the Lord wants to come into your life and help you play it right. You understand? And so focus on what God's given you. Learn to work hard. And this whole context of this, of this scripture is get a J-O-B. Get a J-O-B, people. The Thessalonian church, there were people in the Thessalonian church that were not working because they were waiting for the rapture. I mean, that's as dysfunctional as it gets. Jesus is coming back. What's the point? I'm going to sit back and not do anything. And Paul says, even when I was among you, didn't, didn't have need of you because I work with my own hands because Paul was bivocational. And I'm a big bivocational guy. I own businesses. I work. We manage a million dollars of revenue. I pay $100,000 in taxes every year. I employ 22 people right now and pastor this church and lead my family. And if I don't do it with a place of quiet, rest, and peacefulness inside of me, I'll be fried out, burned out, and I will be a mean, wretched old pastor. Who wants that? But instead, instead of my employees quitting and leaving in high turnover, I haven't had an employee leave me in well over a year, and the average is three to five years. I had all my employees pre-hurricane and post-hurricane without losing any, and now my employees are coming to know Jesus and getting born again. I forgot about my coffee. All while we drink good coffee. Cheers, everybody. Life is good. Let's love Jesus and live normal super normal natural lives and let's be attractive. Can we do that? Let's stand up and lift our hands up to the Lord.